Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Roland Garros is underway. And as always, you know what that means. It is mailbag time on Monday Match Analysis. You like how I have to combine both of my intros? Because it's both. Four times a year, it's both. It's Monday Match Analysis and it's a mailbag. Over 24 hours ago, I posted on the YouTube community tab. A lot of comments, but more importantly... You guys rose to the occasion. Quality is through the roof. The comments are fire this week. I can't wait to get into so many of these topics. Uh, recording this after Sunday play just ended. Before I get into the mailbag, a little bit of housekeeping for what the content is going to look like first week of Roland Garros. I am commentating on TC Plus all throughout the first week, which I'm very excited about, very happy about. If you have TC Plus uh, and you follow me on Twitter, I'll I'll be tweeting every day kind of what matches I'm calling. So you can try to check those out, obviously. And unfortunately for so much of my audience, uh, TC Plus is, is US only. But uh, what that means for the YouTube side of things, I'm still going to try to uh, keep the content going actually daily. So that's the good news. The good news is more content. The bad news is I'm... In a lot of cases, not going to really be able to take my pick on which matches I'm able to watch and which matches I'm not able to watch uh, with all the time I'll need to spend prepping and, of course, the time that I'm spending calling the matches in which I'm only really locked in and focused on one match that that could be whichever match I'm assigned to, I'm not going to really be able to talk about whatever match I want. So I'm going to call the segment Tales from the Booth, and I am going to talk about every match I call. That's how it's going to work. I think it'll be fun. Uh, you know, there might be some instances where there's this massive, you know, match and some interesting upset or something that I won't get to see and I won't get to talk about. But that's going to be the that's going to be the uh, drawback of it. But uh, that is the plan. All right, let's get into this. First mailbag question is from Thomas. What are your thoughts on Arthur Fees? Does he have good weapons? And the potential of the other next-gen guys. Heck yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. Uh, so in Lyon, Arthur Feast became uh, the youngest ATP title winner of the year. He got a couple of walkovers. One from uh, Michael Emer, another from FAA. But then he beat Brandon Nakashima three sets in the semifinal. And beat uh, beat Francisco Serendolo in the final in straight sets. I guess the way I want to answer this question, I'm still learning about his game, obviously. There's still kind of, it's still the honeymoon period where I, I, I've seen him play quite a bit, but I especially haven't gotten the repetition of watching him play against the very best in the world where I feel like you learn the most about, you know, what a guy does best and where they're kind of at. But for Fees, he kind of checks the boxes of those those raw assets that really can't be taught. The the basics, the two things that I look at first before I look at anything else when I'm evaluating the potential of a young player, it's how well do they move? In other words, how fast are they moving around the court? And the second thing is, how hard can they hit the ball? What is their power? How is their power? 
Feast is really seemingly a 99 percentile guy in both areas, which is such an unbelievable base. Now, look, this game is a complex game. Your shot selection matters. Your consistency matters. Your variety matters. You have to develop a precise serve, potentially some volleys, your mental game, handling nerves. Like, we know how many different aspects go into this thing. But if you're going to take two things that you really probably can't teach, how hard do you hit the ball? How fast do you move? That is the 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 base. And Feast is working with an unbelievable base. He's got super strong legs. His forehand is already a massive weapon. Doesn't look like the backhand is necessarily going to be a weakness either. It, it held up really well in the final against Sarundalo. I think the serve technique will ultimately need some tweaking at some point. Uh, he's a highly emotional player. Uh, that, you know, when he's when he's winning and everything's going well, it seems like a good thing. Uh, I don't think he has the best shot tolerance yet, but for a young player, he's uh, he's in an amazing place at, at 18 years old, and I'm super excited about him. The last thing I will say about this also is with uh, French men's tennis, and I feel like France is a really important market for tennis. Obviously, it is a Grand Slam nation. Paris is the only city with two big events. There are so many events in France in general. And of course, it's a passionate tennis fan base. So I think in terms of moving the needle, it's somewhat important that you have some good French players. And last year, I was kind of looking around with the decline of, and in some cases, retirement of Sanga, Gilles Simone, and then the decline of Molfis. Uh, Gasquet actually kind of, kind of holding his own, aging quite nicely, but not really uh, a factor when it comes to contending for at, at the big events anymore. So I'm kind of looking at it and I'm like, all right, what do we got here? We got Benjamin Bonzi, we got Arthur Rinderknecht, and we got Manorino. Like these are the three best French men in tennis. There was just like, it, it hit a little dead period, but I think with Luca Von Asch and Arthur Fies, both of them, I believe, I think Von Asch is still 18 years old, uh, as well as Fies, but Von Asch might be 19, actually. I think he is 19. Uh, with those two guys, you know, next generation, it's uh, it's there. You can see it now. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's good for tennis when when you have some, some high-quality Frenchmen. Obviously, Caroline Garcia, unbelievable last year, so... Uh, that certainly provided a jolt. I wish she was doing a little better this year. Let's go to the next one. It is from Suresh. I always like uniqueness of men's Grand Slam events of best of five sets. But in women's, after two week-long Masters events, they are basically playing Grand Slam type contests too often. So to make it a little bit different, is it possible to introduce best of five sets in women's Grand Slam matches, semifinal onward or final at least? Look, I've never been, I've never been absolutely opposed to uh, women playing best of five at all. In fact, I'm very open to the idea. I still don't have a good feel for if the players want it, and I think if they don't, it's kind of a non-starter. Uh, 
scheduling wise, it might create some issues. Not issues that I I don't think could be overcome, especially if you cut down on on some of the other stuff, right? If you're going to cut down on on for example, doubles, you might be able to make some extra space in uh for for women to play best of 5 in the singles, which is, you know, commercially adds a little bit more uh than the doubles would. Just spitballing here. I don't know that I would want the format to change mid-tournament. I know that that's how it was for a long time at the Masters. I'm sure it was accepted. I'm sure, you know, it 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 seemed normal at the time to just go to best of five for the final. Doesn't feel perfect to me. I feel, you know, either like this is this is the format of the matches and it should kind of stay that way all the way through, in my opinion. Uh, look, I'm open to it. I, I will say this, though. I want to point out that the issue that you're talking about, that the Masters 1000s in the two-week format just don't feel different enough put next to the slams. First of all, I agree with that, especially with the larger draws. I think the, the big distinction between the Masters 1000s and the Majors in the 56-player format is because, it or, or the main difference was, the Masters was a packed draw with absolutely zero fat. Like there was, if you were not, if you were not a top 50 player, then you were going to have to play qualifying to even get in to a Masters 1000. These draws were tiny. Your first round match was tough. Your second round match was tough. Your third round match was tough. You, you get the point. And that to me was the difference between a Masters 1000 and a major, which is we're going to blow up the draw real, real, real big. 128 players, seven rounds, marathon, not a sprint. And yeah, I mean, the, the, now with the 96-player draw, 32 seeds, first round bye for the seeds, seven rounds, just like the majors, it feels more similar. Do I love that? No. Let me throw this your way. You know, the tours don't care. The tours don't care at all. This is not part of their calculus. You got you guys always need to remember the financial the the financial setup in, in tennis and the I'm the the word is escaping me, but uh there is no unified organizer here. The tours do not care if Roland Garros, Wimbledon, the US Open, and the Australian Open feel less special. They do not care about that. They don't own those events. They own the Masters events. So if it's going to make the Masters events feel bigger at the expense of the four majors, the ATP and the WTA, they're going to sign off to that every single time. They love that. So keep that in mind. I'm not saying they, they don't want the majors to do well. I, I don't mean it that way when I say I love that. But... If it's going to elevate their Masters 1000s, that's what's most important to them. They do not care about creating a contrast between the slams and the Masters. It's just not a part of, of their interests. Next one is from Avi. Hey, Gil. As always, thanks for the great content. You're very welcome. couple of questions. Have you noticed the extreme reluctance of Ostapenko to hit an overhead smash? Your take? 
All right, let's start there. There's another question here from Avi, but uh, yes, I have noticed. Ostapenko kind of has the perfect blend of attributes that gives her the ability to kind of get away with that. Uh, first of all, she has maybe the best drive volleys in all of women's tennis. So she hits the swing volley exceptionally well. And in a lot of situations that would generally call for the overhead, she just goes to the drive volley. I think the the spot where it's pretty tough to hit an overhead is if you're at net and you get lobbed. And that's where, okay, now I'm moving backwards. I'm retreating. And it's pretty tough to, to not hit an overhead at that point. Um, I feel like Ostapenko, with how she constructs her own court position, she tends to avoid that situation. She's got so much baseline power that usually when she approaches the net, it's actually a delayed approach. She's hit her approach shot. She's going to read the next ball and attack the floater coming forward and finish from there. You know, rarely is she going to kind of put herself in a position where she's in tight on the net and her opponent has a look at a pass and they're going to throw up a lob. That scenario just doesn't come up all that much in Ostapenko's matches. She doesn't really get punished either from for staying back. You know, she's reluctant to, to come forward. Uh... Largely, I, I don't think she's more reluctant than a lot of the other players on, on the WTA Tour, but she's somewhat reluctant to come forward. She doesn't really pay the price for that because she has so much finishing power off the ground. So there's a lot of things that kind of fall into place for Ostapenko to make that work. All right, next question. While Medvedev is having his best season ever and some aspects of his game and mentality return to their 2019 through 2021 glory and even improved, I can't notice, but no, I can't. I couldn't but notice that his serve regressed a bit and he doesn't hit as many aces slash unreturnables. Have you noticed the same? Am I being delusional? <laughs> uh, you're not, actually. Especially especially if you just look at his clay court season where, you know, it's, it's clay. So he's not going to get as much out of his serve. But if you look at the numbers year long, uh, since 2019, Medvedev has been in double-digit ace rates every single year. 11.4 in 19, uh, 12.6 in 2020, 12.6 again in 2021, and slightly down last year to 11.8%. This year, it's down to 8.8%. So that's that would be his lowest ace rate um, really since breaking onto the tour in 2017. Now, I think a lot of that has to do with how much tennis he's played on slow surfaces. At this point in time, a kind of a, a somewhat oversized uh, sample of his matches have been played on, on clay compared to what it has been in years past. We've gone over all the health issues and all of the early losses that he's suffered on the clay in recent years. So, so that is certainly a part of it. Uh, Rotterdam, you know, although it's indoors, that's, somewhat slow. If you look at his ace rates in, in Miami, uh, towards the end of Miami, they're actually very high. Uh, you know, against Eubanks, against Hatchinov, against Sinner, I thought he was serving well. Uh, but, you know, if you look at the overall trend, you are absolutely right. There are not as many uh, free points. I do feel like, again, we, we need to see him, we need to see how that number tracks in order to really, really make any broad conclusions on it. 
But what's really changed for Medvedev compared to years past statistically is his his break rate way up on pace for a, a career high in break percentage by far. You know, for his career, his break rate is 27.4%. It's at 35.4% this year. So it is up uh, seven percentage points this year, which is un- it's extremely significant. So he's breaking serve more. Just curious. What what I also want to look at his first serve percentage if he's making more. That is not the case. Yeah, his first serves in is uh is also down. So I don't have an explanation. I don't have an explanation for that. Not sure. Let's see. I mean, you know, if if he's gonna continue to break serve at this rate, it's not gonna cost him. All right, next question is from Ronnie Gao, who is a member. Appreciate that. Uh, you can become a member by hitting the join button. It is $2 a month to support the channel, and I appreciate it. Hey, Gil, reposing this question from my Apple podcast review. I don't see that review, but maybe I just missed it. Uh, anyway, we have your comment here. That's what matters. Once we head into the second week of a major, what weightings do you give to each of the following factors in percentage terms as, as you predict how far a player can go? One, past major performance. Two, performance at recent tournaments. Three, form during the first week of the current major. Hmm, okay. I would say, for me, the biggest deal, I mean, look, sample size here, all right? The biggest deal is one. I think maybe 70% of how I feel about a player coming into the second week of a major is going to be dictated by what I've seen from them throughout their career. I mean, I, that that might sound a little funky, but when you think about it, I'm just going to give you an example here. Uh, uh, let's say a, a random example. Uh, let's see who, who picked up a good win uh, today. Um, Nadia Podoroska. Won her match six love six two. I don't care how good she looked in that match. I know what she's done in her career, and that is going to mainly dictate how I feel about Podoroska moving forward. Obviously, I didn't see her match, so it's it's not the best example. I, I didn't evaluate her form, but uh, you kind of get the point. I mean, that's most of it. So I'll say seventy percent to that. Uh, I would say. The next 20% is to performance at recent tournaments. You know, you can have a guy like Carolina, uh, sorry, guy like, a uh, woman like Carolina Muhova or a guy like Jan Lennard Struff. Now, these are two players who I'm very high on at the moment because of what I've seen from them recently. Number three is 10%. Form during the first week of a major. And that, that's generally because, you know, the competition is is not always is not always there, especially for the seeded players. And that was a mistake I, I used to make a lot, I think, as a younger analyst. I would watch particularly the favorites to win an event, and I would see how efficiently they were beating their opponents, and I would I would read into their form way too much. And 
it would throw me off. It would it would throw me off every single time because it can be a different sport when you meet your equal versus when you're you're playing someone who you're you're far better than. Uh, it's just reading into the top seeds against the unseeds in the first couple rounds is generally a mistake. So, just my experience. Next one is from HR, Human Resources. How much impact do you think the weather and conditions will have on Djokovic? He seems drastically better in warmer, faster climates. Example, Australian Open Wimbledon. Then compared to his performance recently on very slow and abnormally wet clay events. All right. I think the weather conditions are a factor here. I think how different it is from Rome should be kept in mind. But I think more so for a guy like Daniil Medvedev, who was abnormally good in Rome, who played the best clay court tennis we've ever seen him play in Rome, and is somebody who plays pretty flat and benefits from low bouncing conditions to a, a very large extent. Uh, the trend you're pointing out with Novak Djokovic, I just don't know if I'm there. First of all, the U.S. Open's a lot warmer than Wimbledon. I think Roland Garros is generally about the same as Wimbledon, weather-wise. So, I I just I don't know where we're where we're really where we're where we're getting this. Uh, I actually think the low low bouncing conditions are massively advantageous for Djokovic when when the ball isn't bouncing as high. Uh, a lot of a lot of players who have been able to take advantage of Novak on clay have namely utilized the ability to get the ball above his shoulders attacking the backhand side and drawing shorter and weaker balls than you would ordinarily be able to draw from attacking the Novak Djokovic backhand. By using heavy topspin, by using the kick serve. Think about Alcaraz in Madrid last year. Uh, I think about some of the Dominic team uh, Novak Djokovic matches. Uh, for example, uh, the semifinal they played. I know it was windy and it was interrupted. I, I think it was... Is that 2019 they played the semifinal? That was another match where, you know, team was using the high heavy ball, uh, getting it upstairs above the Djokovic strike zone on the backhand. That can be a really, really big deal. And for, for Nadal, it's been massive against Nadal, obviously. Not even just with his forehand cross court, which is what everybody talks about, uh, I think because of the, the Federer pattern that would tend to play out. But even with the loopy backhand down the line, mixed in with the low biting backhand slice. I'm just not with you on this. I could be wrong. Maybe I'm missing it. But to me, the lower bounce is a really good thing for Djokovic. Again, everybody talks about court speed. But I don't think it's as much about court speed uh, for Djokovic. Yeah, I agree. Faster conditions are better for him. But the height of bounce is also a big deal. And I prefer lower for Novak. I, I believe he does. I, I believe he prefers lower. Next one's from Sophia. 
uh, let me just point out, like, think about indoors. Those are the lower, the lowest bouncing conditions. And grass. Now, Wimbledon, Australian Open, uh, but Paris Bercy, the year-end championships, whether that be at the O2 or in Turin, like, these are the low bouncing conditions. Novak has absolutely dominated those events. Dominated. It's the high. It's the higher bouncing clay that gives him a lot more problems, in my opinion. All right, next one's from Sophia. Thanks for the kind words there. Appreciate it. Uh, can you talk about Tsitsipas and Zverev's choices to split with their coaches, especially right before a slam? What does this mean for them, short and long term, as both are yet to win one? All right. So, uh, should we go one by one or should we talk about both of them at the same time? I think we can talk about both of them at the same time. Tsitsipas split with Mark Filipusis. Zverev split uh, with Sergei Bruguera. Both men are primarily coached by their father. Both men have holes in their games, weaknesses in their games that have not improved as quickly. Some areas have not improved at all as much as they would want or need to take the next step in their careers. And both of them have had absolutely phenomenal careers, all things considered. Neither of them have been able to win a major uh, both of them have been in finals, but at the end of the day, <laughs> I this is not new. This is not a reaction to anything that's happened recently, especially for Zverev, who you know he he just he can't have a coach. He clearly, I, maybe at some point this will change, but Juan Carlos Ferrero Ferrero tried, Ivan Lendl tried. Sergey Bruguera tried. David Ferrer tried. None of them lasted more than a year. All right. This isn't going to work. Right? You can't coach Verev. I mean, am I being unfair to come to that conclusion? I don't think so. I mean, you're, you're 0 for 4 on keeping a coach for longer than a year and a half. So, clearly the dynamic on the Zverev team, where his father still yields a lot of power, clearly that is not a workable dynamic for a outside coach coming in and trying to make an impact. It's not a favorable working environment where that coach feels that they are making the best impact possible. Or perhaps in some of these cases, Zverev feels that it's not working. But I don't know. I mean, usually it's the player, but in some of these cases, it it, it has felt like it's been more uh, the coaches, especially for, for Juan Carlos Ferrer. We know it was him. And just being like, yeah, I don't really want to work with this guy. <laughs> so it's it's I don't I don't admire it about Zverev. I don't think it's a good thing. I look at most of the greats in the sport. It's not a quality that they share. Most of them have consistency. They have great coaches, and those great coaches are part of the team for a long time. It's usually what it is. Tsitsipas said, specifically, 
that essentially that there were too, ma too many kicks, cooks in the kitchen, too many cooks in the kitchen, that for him, it was very important to simplify the message and that it was very difficult at times to be receiving opinions from two coaches at the same time, his father and Mark Philippoussis. Stephanos is right. That's a nightmare. And even in setups where you have two coaches, take Novak Djokovic, for example, right? He had Vida and Goran on the coaching team at the same time. But if you listen to what has been explained by, by Goran and, and by Novak himself about what the dynamic was, they set clear guidelines here that only one was going to be with Novak at once and that the line of communication was going to be from one of them. One of them at a time. And if it was Goran on site and Vida at home, Goran and, and Vida were going to talk on the phone every day. If Vida had something, if Vida had an opinion or a message that he wanted to relay, he would give it to Goran, but it would ultimately come from Goran. Vice versa, if it was Ivanisevic's turn to stay home and Vida's turn to be with Novak. I mean, that, that's a sensible way to make it work. But when you have egos involved, it can't work like that. And I'm not saying it's wrong, especially for a Mark Philippoussis to have an ego. Or a Sergei Bruguera to have an ego. Arguably, they should have an ego. Like, you're hiring me to coach. Let me coach here. I'm, I should be the guy. I'm not going to come on here and and kind of take a back seat and be this kind of uh complimentary role to your father but it it almost seems like that is maybe what Sasha and Stefanos and their respective fathers are are kind of looking for and that's not going to work for most of these coaches that we're talking about it might work for some but probably not for a Sergey Bruguera um or a Mark Philippoussis you know guys who they had great playing careers. They would be sought after coaches. And while it's a great privilege to coach a top player like Stefanos or or Sasha, they they're not just gonna do it just to do it. All right. So ultimately Stefanos is right about getting opinions from two different sources. That's horrendous. That is counterproductive. Ultimately, the decision there is going to be, do I want to get rid of my father or do I want to get rid of the, the former pro who I brought in here? And it's very much clear that Stefanos is not able to make that the, the former decision. He is not able to part ways. Uh, not it's not parting ways because it's a familial relationship, right? There's never going to be a parting of ways, but you can alter and adjust the relationship. You can change the way the relationship functions. You can create some distance. You can draw some lines in the sand. I'm uncomfortable assigning blame to Stephanos or Apostolos. It's tough. There's a lot at play here. Same thing for Alex Sr., Alexander Zverev Sr. There's a lot at play here. I don't really care to talk about whose fault it is. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. The point is, 
the reality of the situation at this point probably puts both of those players at a disadvantage in their careers. Next one is from Ron. Ron Robbie. What is missing from Zverev's game since his return? He should be in fully playing form by now, but something just isn't clicking. He showed great signs of improvement uh, into Indian Wells and has been very unstable since, including losses to O'Connell and Taro Daniels. What are your thoughts on him heading into a semifinal defense at Roland Garros? I don't think the problems are new for Zverev. And this kind of goes back into, I didn't get into detail with the weaknesses for Tsitsipas and Zverev that just haven't been sorted out at any point throughout their careers as much as uh, really they they need to be. Uh, but for Zverev, forever it's been second serve and forehand plus nerve management. We haven't really seen nerve management, I don't think, come too much into play. I mean, maybe a little bit in those tight Medvedev matches that went into third set tie breaks, but ultimately he hasn't found himself in super high-pressure situations, especially not situations that he hasn't come through uh, before in the past. But ultimately, he is not comfortable being aggressive on his forehand as of yet. That, to me, was the big difference in his game when he was playing the best tennis of his life in 2021. I also thought, you know, the forehand was pretty good last year at Roland Garros on the semifinal run, although I think it was actually the backhand that was standing out most to me. I thought he was hitting the backhand better than any two-hander in the game at that time. But it's really just how confident is he being offensive and how's he hitting the second serve? So statistically, I want to point out that among top 50 players, Alexander Zverev in 2023 has by far uh, the worst second serve points win percentage in the top 50. I mean, Marin Cilic is worse, but he's played one match. Don't think that counts. Zverev on the year, winning 44.3% of his second serve points. So again, that ranks technically 49th, but in earnest, it's the worst in the top 50. Just ahead of Bublik, Zapata Marias, Botic. Van de Zanschop. Uh First serve points one. Let's see where he's at. He is... Where the heck is he? He's actually way too low in that as well. Interesting. Um, I'm not going to count. It would take too long, and it doesn't give me the number, but it looks like he's around 25 or something. Uh, so let's see. Let's see where he's at in hold percentage. Uh, he's very far down. Yeah, he's he's actually below average top 50 in hold percentage this year. Um, that's interesting. I didn't realize the serve numbers were actually that bad. I really didn't realize that. Uh, let's see where he's at. Break percentage, I'm curious now. Um, and he's a little bit better relative... Uh, to top 50, he's about average in, in break percentage. He looks looks around 25. So, uh, look, that shouldn't be all that shocking because his win-loss record this year is 16 and 15. So you would expect that his numbers would be rather pedestrian. 
but ultimately it's that he's not playing great offensive tennis. He's still struggling on the second serve. He's still struggling on the forehand. The first serve, it's, look, for, from what I've seen, you know, it, it's good, but it's not dominant enough to to put him into the elite ranks if he's not going to be a dominant baseliner. It's it's not good enough because uh, it's not that precise. It's big, but I don't think he, he wants to hit second serves. I think he goes for rather big targets. And generally what we'll see with Zverev on serve, uh, we'll see his first serve percentage is up around 70%. But then if you look at where he's actually putting the ball, not all that close to the lines. Again, I think because he doesn't want to hit second serves. Against the best returners, they're going to make those returns. Doesn't matter if you're you're hitting it 130. They're going to make those returns. All right, this next one is an Apple Podcasts review. I'm going to shorten these for, for timeliness. Um, okay, first one. And thanks for the kind words at the top. In your Nadal withdraws from Rome video, you mentioned how many tennis players, including Federer and Djokovic, have delusional confidence. Do you have any examples of delusional confidence in Federer slash Djokovic or other players? I'm not sure if this counts as delusional confidence, but I know recently Zverev predicted himself to win Madrid and possibly Roland Garros this year, despite having yet to beat a top 20 player this season. Do you have any good, possibly famous examples of delusional confidence? Look, to be honest, no. And and this is tough because you're trying to crawl into the psychology of players and you can't really do that in any kind of definitive way. Not to mention the fact that when it comes to delusional confidence, most players like to keep that inside. Yeah, just try to be a little bit modest. Usually it goes over better. Doesn't put a target on your back. Zverev doesn't really get that memo, doesn't really subscribe to that, likes to put himself in there. But usually players are going to be far more modest in terms of what they say compared to what they're actually thinking. But look, when it comes to delusional confidence in tennis, once again, uh, it's a good thing. I, I made that very clear in the video, but in case some of you... Uh, didn't watch the video where I talked about how Nadal, I think, operates a little bit differently uh, mentally compared to most tennis players. Uh, delusional confidence is something that you absolutely should have. It's not the only way to go about things, but the point is you convince yourself every time you step on the court that you are going to win the match. And obviously for the very best in the world and the greatest players of all time, it's a little bit harder to call that confidence delusional because they are the best and because they do win so much. But still... Uh, Djokovic needed to be as a 12-year-old kid planning on being the number one player in the world. You realize that the math, you know, and that was his plan. Like, he always wanted to be the best, number one. Same with Holger Runa, same with Carlos Alcaraz. A lot of players kind of grow up thinking that way. You realize that's delusional, and just because it, it comes true doesn't make it any less delusional. The math on that is crazy. And odds are, you know, for, for every player who, who thinks that way and makes it, there are a million players who think that way and don't make it. Uh, but a far better example and an easier example is, you know, when when the 
heavy underdog step onto the court, they have to try to convince themselves that they're going to be able to win the match. And that's why tennis players just, you know, they, and, and athletes, by the way, all athletes, they, they try to build themselves up with the sense of delusional confidence. And by the way, I think it, it occurs at all levels. And I try not to talk too much about my own escapades, but, uh, I'll say like, you know, even in my local community growing up and, I don't know, with the with the guys I grew up playing with. There was one guy who kind of kicked our butts, but other than that, like, I would say I grew up with, you know, a bunch of players, and we all thought that we were better than each other. Now, that wasn't true. We weren't all the best. There was a hierarchy there. Some of us were better than others, but we all we all thought we were going to beat each other every single time. We all thought that we were the best player. And, you know, that's just kind of the psychology of a tennis player. You think you're the man in general. Not all players operate by, that way, by the way. Uh, Jack Draper, I talked to him at the U.S. Open, and he was like, you know, he operates off of doubt. He's like, yeah, I never really believe that I'm going to win. I, I'm just kind of terrified uh, of, of losing, and that's kind of what motivates me. So some players are like that as well. Second one is, uh, do you have any favorite players? I'm not going to read the rest of the, the comment, but um, there's a, a reference to me being super happy when Rublev won. Um, yeah, I mean, there are sometimes, like in the case of Rublev, where I will, I will be happy with a storyline or someone who I really just think deserves a big result. There are also players, certainly, who I like to watch more than others. Players who I think if I got a beer with, I would get along with more than others. But all that said, when I'm actually watching tennis, I have zero emotion and zero care for the most part of what happens other than wanting my picks to be correct. So I don't have any favorite players. I have, again, developed a natural cognitive dissonance to what happens in tennis uh, because I have put myself in the state of mind constantly of trying to figure out what's going on and trying to analyze things. And by putting myself in that state of mind over and over and over again, again, it, it it's literally cognitive dissonance. It completely takes away my ability to have emotions like a fan generally have has emotions. So I'm not sitting on the couch super sad about somebody losing, super happy about somebody winning. Ever. Ever. Hard for some people to believe, but it's true. All right, from NHL time. What are your thoughts on FAA's ability on Clay? We saw him take Rafa to five sets at RG last year, but doesn't it feel like his main weapon, his serve, should be limited on the Clay? Would love to hear your thoughts about what he can do on Clay in general in the future. I think Felix's Roland Garros last year might be just an example of how a really big showcase in a huge match can kind of skew perception a little bit because he did play unbelievably well against an informed Nadal on Chatrier. Took it to him, pushed him five. FAA's serve was out of control good. His serve and his forehand out of control good in the two sets he won. I remember analyzing that match and just being like, Holy smokes. I mean, Rafa had no chance with the serve plus one tennis that FAA was playing uh, in the two sets that he was able to win. You look at the overall body of work, though. FAA is not good on clay. He's not. 
2020, he was one and three on clay. In 2021, he was four and six on clay. It wasn't until last year where he made the quarters of Madrid, Rome, and Roland Garros, ended up finishing 11 and seven on the clay. I uh, had this really, you know, very, very full clay court season, and it just felt like he got pretty comfortable by the end there. Uh, plus, 2022 overall was very, very good for Felix. Yeah, that, that's been his only good season on clay. You know, he's, he's had one good clay court season. That's it. Uh, 2019 was pretty good as well, but that was, a, a lot of that was actually uh, golden swing. Rio made the final in Rio. First career final, I believe. Lost to Laz Legera. think so. Yeah. Didn't do too well at the Masters there. But, yeah, the serve is uh, is minimized. It's not a good thing for Felix. He's got to hit way more backhands, ultimately. He's got to play way more neutral rallies. And his consistency is tested. His shot tolerance is tested. His backhand is tested. His point construction is tested. His finishing abilities are tested in ways that uh, they are not on his best surface, which has been the grass throughout his career uh, in terms of win percentage. And certainly on the indoor hard courts, he has, he has excelled in a huge way. In fact, his last, let's see, one, two, three, four, for his last five finals on tour have been indoor hardcourt finals. The one before that was grass. Wow. It's actually one, two. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Eight of FAA's last ten finals have been on indoor hardcourts. That's something else. Uh, I also think another thing that might have skewed FAA's perception on clay is early in his career, his first two finals were on clay courts. Rio in 2019, February, and then later on in that clay court season, he made the final of Lyon and lost to Benoit Pair. So those were his first two finals. That skewed perception because it's not his best surface. From Fresh Shame... Not necessarily RG-related, but she did win this tournament before. I can't figure out Krejcikova. I know you won't watch women's tennis that much, uh, but if you can't explain her, nobody can. She's not the best at anything. There are people with better movement, serve, return, ground strokes, but she still seems to keep winning big titles, though there isn't any defining feature about her besides being a double specialist and having those big backswings. What she does do right Oh, what does she do right that other women don't do? Everything's relative. I do believe I watch more women's tennis than than most. But yes, I do watch more men's tennis as a result of of uh doing this doing this podcast. But as always, you know, Monday match analysis is a men's tennis podcast, but the mailbag is not. The mailbag is not. Uh all right. I disagree with, first of all, the notion that her return isn't special. I, I would urge you to watch her return a little bit closer, especially the first serve return. Despite her big backswings, she does a an excellent job of rushing her opponents 
with the the speed that she's able to hit her return of serves, her first serve returns, and she takes it somewhat early, as do almost every WTA player. You don't really see the tactic of moving way back often uh, on the WTA tour, but but she has incredible timing and a cleanliness of ball striking. And it helps her in two areas mainly. I think the two things to watch out for for her. How well she returns the first serve. And the second thing is how accurate she is when she is attacking. And, you know, to some extent when she's trading. But you're right. It's not the power. There are two qualities that make her ground game stand out. She's unbelievably accurate. And... It's incredibly difficult to read where she's going with the ball. Something about how she holds her backswings, how she sets up with her footwork. Maybe it's a little bit about uh, on the on the backhand side, just how late, you know, how 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 long the hips kind of stay closed. Uh, look, I I can't get into quite the technical nuance of it uh, to the fullest extent that that maybe some others could, but. You just can't really get a read on where she's going with the ball because her setup just looks the same. And she kind of holds holds her her take back until the last minute on a lot of her attacks. So not only do you not know where she's going, but but she just puts the ball on a dime. You're right. The power isn't huge. The athleticism isn't huge. She doesn't move all that well. She does not serve big at all. Her serve is not a strength. But she really does attack well with how difficult her ball is to read and how accurate she is. She just she puts the ball near the sidelines on a regular basis when she's able to kind of step in and attack. Um, and she's got good depth as well. Pretty steady. Uh, those are the things that I think stand out about Krejcikova. Talk about uh, perception being skewed. I don't know that Clay's her best surface. I don't. I, I think, you know, she's not a very surface-dependent player. But as of late, uh, it hasn't really been evident that Clay is her best surface, even though that was where her breakthrough was was had. Next one is from BS Russian. Nice username. And thanks for being a member. Uh, would you say Medvedev's success on Clay will make him even more dangerous on hard courts this year? With the work he's done to improve his forehand, are we going to be seeing a more aggressive Medvedev from now on? Will it help him everywhere? I'm going to keep the answer to this question pretty simple. When you're able to hit your forehand bigger, when you're able to generate offense from behind the baseline, generate your own pace off of slow, deep returns, when you're able to finish from the back of the court, um, or not necessarily even finish, when you're able to finish from inside the court easily, when you're able to break your opponent's contact point and build from, from the back of the court, it's going to help you on all surfaces. There's no there's no surface that doesn't reward, I hit my forehand bigger now. All right, another Apple Podcasts review from Henry. Hey, Gil, love your commentary. Thank you. I want to ask you about the next generation of tennis. All of the Masters 1000 finals this season have included Alcaraz, Runa, or Sinner. When the, when the hype for this new big three reaches its zenith, will it be warranted or is it destructive to the game? 
Great question. I'm really glad you asked that. Two things I want to say. First of all, we can't be a prisoner to the number three. It is possible that there are going to be three players who specifically separate themselves from everybody else. That's possible in the next, you know, era. But it's also very possible that that does not occur. And we need to be careful to not just be like, oh, yeah, like we love the number three. So let's just let's just keep talking about the number three as if there needs to be a big three all the time. On the women's tour right now. It's it's actually happened that way. Sabalenka, Rybakina, Sviantek, Tier 1, nobody else in that tier. Nobody else on their level this year. That's not a debate. So it has been a big three, and obviously that's been tossed around. Like, oh, there's a new big three on the, on the women's side. I would not say that anything of that sort has developed on the men's side, and I would not be confident that it will at any point. It might be four. It might be two. It might be one. Might be five. You get my point? It's kind of like Joel Drucker uh, always says, what is it with Mount Rushmore? I And this is going to be a very American-specific thing, but uh, if you're not aware, there is a big monument in, I, I'm pretty sure, North Dakota, or is it Montana? I think it's North Dakota, uh, with former United States uh, presidents etched into a mountainside. And, you know, they're four of the greatest presidents that we've had in our country's history. And on in sports, it's been a very popular thing to be like, who's on the Mount Rushmore of the NBA? And uh, Joel has always been like, what are we doing here? Like, why are we, because of a monument in North Dakota... Deciding who the top four is. Like, what a random number that is. Why are we choosing that number? So I think in terms of the big three, it's got a nice ring to it. And it it existed in, you know, the last era of men's tennis. Let's not force it. Second part of my answer here is about, you know, the hype. Is the hype destructive to the game? I don't get this. I've never understood hype being destructive to the game. Look, my goal is to be accurate and realistic and, you know, provide the the smartest possible tennis commentary I can provide. That's my goal here. Uh, but sometimes I am accused of kind of overhype as if it's going to, I don't know. Let's not make this about me. I don't want to make this about me. Or, or what anybody has ever accused me of. Uh, I, I think it's kind of all over tennis. Like, don't overhype. There's this big effort. Don't overhype. All right. Look, if you disagree with positive analysis, that's fine. But what is this aversion to overhype, like, like excitement, enthusiasm over a player potentially being good or doing well? How is that a bad thing? How is that hurting the game? I'm not understanding that. What I think it is, because I don't understand it, of course I think, okay, what's happening here? 
I think it is fan bases feeling wronged or threatened about another player getting a lot of credit that they might feel like their favorite player didn't get, hasn't gotten, should be getting. That's what I think this is about. But from a neutral standpoint here, I don't see how hype is destructive to the game. In some cases, it can be destructive to the player, right? Sometimes that's not a good thing. There are certainly examples of that. I don't have to go through them. You know it. You know, a player getting too much hype, that potentially, you know, uh, them feeling the weight of that, extra pressure because of that, and that hurting their career. That's the thing. But destructive to the game? No. No, I'm not seeing that. Uh, obviously, the player who, who this has been talked about most with recently is Alcaraz. The, the media is overhyping Alcaraz? Really? I, I don't think that has happened at all. All he has done is proven anybody who got excited about Alcaraz last year at the beginning, anybody who said big things like, wow, I think this guy is, is one of a kind. I think he's special. I think he's a general talent, generational talent. All he's done is proven us correct. It's the only thing he's done. And when he starts to prove some of the statements wrong, when he starts to, you know, have long-term failures, then we can have a conversation about potentially analysis that that happened, you know, beginning of, of 2022 or throughout the year or after the U.S. Open in 2022. Uh, we can talk about some of those assessments being incorrect at a certain point. But thus far, all he's done is proven the hype correct. That's it. All right, this is a long one from Emily. Hey, Gil, I've heard you as of late comment that you are concerned about Holger Runa's fitness at the back end of tournaments. I sort of agree with you, but have a slightly different take on it. My girlfriend is a physical therapist and spends a lot of time, sometimes to her chagrin, <laughs> watching tennis with me. I have noticed that Holger walks very funny. The way he moves around the court always looks like he's possibly injured. When I ask her about it, she says his problem is that he is quad dominant, meaning his hamstrings are not as developed as his quadriceps, and therefore he doesn't use them. He is not splitting the workload between the quad muscles and the hamstring muscles. What I wonder is if possibly he is losing his legs, not because of poor fitness in terms of stamina, but because he is exhausting the quadricep muscles, which are doing the majority of the work because of his hamstring weakness. Thank you, as always, for the excellent content. Uh, content. Uh, I have a podcast on a totally separate set of topics, but use some of the uh, skills and analysis I've learned from you to analyze topics I cover. Love to chat sometimes. That's really cool. Appreciate that. Uh, reach out to me via some social media. Can't do it on YouTube. There's no DMs on YouTube. Uh, I don't have much to add to this. I thought it was such an interesting comment that I wanted to include it and read it for the most part. I have noticed that Holger's gait is funky. I have noticed that. I have wondered about it. I have never known what it means, but a trained physical therapist is obviously trained at, at, at looking at something like that and recognizing what does your walk 
tell us about how you're using your leg muscles. And I, I had experience with that because I dislocated my, my patella, which is your kneecap and, uh, you know, tore a bunch of ligaments, crazy muscular atrophy, atrophy, you know, couldn't walk for a while. And, you know, when I was coming back, I would have my, my walk kind of analyzed to try to get it so that I was building up my, my leg muscles again in a way that was balanced and was going to kind of put me on the best possible path to recovery. So I'm familiar with all of this and uh, it's a very interesting comment. Let's keep going. Um, I want to get to a couple more, even though uh, I've gone well, I've gone over an hour here. All right. This one is from Bran, not Brian, Bran. Have you seen Coco Goff's comment on her forehand being a weapon? I have. I have. Uh, let me, let me try to pull up the quote if I can here. Coco Goff forehand. Uh, Coco said, quote, I mean, obviously the forehand is something that I have to improve on, but on clay especially, I feel like it's one of my weapons. Um, in all my practice matches, obviously I have the advantage. I know where they're going to play me. I know exactly what they're going to do. Now it's all about executing. In a way, I'm using it more as a strength. Look. I don't want to kill Coco for this. She got kind of dragged online for classifying her forehand as a weapon. But should she really come out here in the public and just tear down her forehand? Just be like, yeah, it kind of stinks. I'm trying to figure it out. I, I, I don't know that that would really help her in any kind of way. Now, uh, is it important that you know, she is self-aware. Do I think it's important that she is determined to not accept the current level of her forehand, not accept it for what it is, and to, you know, really be determined to improve it, to take risks in order to improve it? It's a risk to change your forehand technique, to make adjustments. But I, I really want her to take those risks. I hope that she does. I was disappointed that she did not in the previous offseason. And I think that in combination with her comments have opened her up for criticism. But what I will continue to do is really focus on what's happening on court here. Focus on the results. Keep the criticism focused on that. I don't want to... Look, she's in a tough position when she's you know trying to figure out what to say to the press. And I don't want to criticize her for that. But I, I will be open to criticizing her for the development of her forehand writ large. From Stewart, are the courts at Roland Garros slower this year? Medvedev mentioned in an interview that this was the case. He also said the balls were, quote, fluffy. If this is the case, Gil, what is the impact of these two changes in conditions in uh, to matchups and predictions? Yeah, look, I mean, I've the only person I've seen say this was Daniil, but Daniil also said that, you know, the locker room was kind of buzzing about that, that there was a general consensus that the courts were were slower and the ball was fluffing up. And obviously those two things are related. In terms of uh, predictions, uh, I think it's good for Alcaraz. I think the heavier and the slower, the better. That's better for Alcaraz, especially, you know, if he goes up against Djokovic, who's going to look to rush him, who... 
doesn't hit as big as him off the ground. Medvedev, there's pros and cons. Runa, there's pros and cons. I think mostly it's good, but obviously it might make things a little bit more physical to him, which is the main question mark coming in. Sinner, no strong feelings. Struff, who I have getting to the quarterfinal, obviously a bad thing for Struff. Hatchinov, bad thing for Hatchinov. I think, you know, he'd, he'd like the clay to be a little bit quicker. Yeah, but uh, look, I mean, in general, my predictions have reflected slow conditions, right? It would be one thing if I if I completely misjudged the court conditions. That happened at one event this year. Oh, Miami. Yeah, Miami, and I'll know for next year because, you know, I, I just didn't realize. But Miami, I kind of, I did my preview. I made my predictions assuming that Miami was pretty much a, a medium-paced hardcore I did not know that James Blake told the manufacturers to speed it up, baby. And then Miami ended up being really fast. This is not going to be a case like that where my predictions were kind of on false pretenses. So pretty much most stuff is is the same here. All right, last one. It's from Mark. Hi, Gil. Should Tommy Paul's movement make him a good fit for the clay? Uh, what does he need to replicate his French Open success from junior years. Thanks in advance. Yeah, Tommy Paul is a junior Roland Garros champion. He is also a, uh, an amazing mover, great athlete. He's a fairly consistent player in addition to that. So all those things considered, and people have often been like, oh, Tommy Paul, Clay. Yeah, he's the American who's going to do well on Clay. Well, it hasn't really played out that way. Many people have, have been surprised by that. I will say I have not been. Uh, the biggest thing here is the forehand. My favorite offense for Paul, I've said this over and over again, is him coming forward, getting to net uh, as quickly as possible, using serve and volley, approaching off of his backhand, which he does way better than most, especially for two-handers, and off of short balls, you know, hit hit one forehand, come in behind it. Use the athleticism and the hands that he possesses at net. Uh, that's my favorite way that Tommy Paul creates offense. He struggles generating offense from the back of the court because his flat backhand, which in speedy conditions like on grass or at the U.S. Open, uh, he can create a lot of damage with his backhand. But on clay, when you hit a flat backhand, it's not going to be the weapon that you need it to be from the back of the court. It's got to be the forehand. Tommy's forehand is just inconsistent. It's not all that big, but I wouldn't say the power is, is the real problem with it. The issue is the reliability. Tommy Paul just doesn't string together great forehands over and over and over again. Uh, and, you know, I, I thought it was interesting. Uh, Tennis Insights, which I, I shouted out on, uh, on Monday Match Analysis after Rome, uh, they did a thing where they took the top 16 seeds at Roland Garros... And they put these guys in uh, in charts. In fact, let me see if I if I can pull this up. I think it's going to be worth the slight delay here as I try to pull this up. Um, okay, I'm going to get this for you guys because it shows forehand and backhand uh, shot quality 
of the top 16 seeds coming into Roland Garros. And I think you guys are going to find this really interesting, especially if you have not seen it. But it is going to take me a moment to grab this. Um, again, this is real-time analytics uh, that Tennis Insights is able to collect on every single shot that these guys hit. And it tracks the speed, the spin, the width, the depth, uh, the effect on the opponent. You know, does it take away their court position? All of these things it's tracking. Uh, and, and here's the result. All right, I'm going to put it up on the screen right now on YouTube. So, uh, forehand quality. You can see only one guy worse than Tommy Paul. And it's Hubert Hurkacz. Of the top 16 seeds. But everybody else is, is far better than Hercotch and Paul. Hercotch and Paul are the two outliers. It's amazing to see Felix on the two extremes. It looks like he's got the best forehand quality of the top 16 seeds in the, limit, in the limited sample size. But he has uh, the, the lowest backhand quality along with Tommy Paul. Uh, Hercotch has the, the worst forehand quality by far. I mean, he's a total outlier. So, you know, I look at those things. I'm not too surprised by those things. And then, you know, the thing about this graphic is everybody else is so bunched up that I don't really take too much from it. You know, they're, they're, they're all kind of somewhat comparable. Uh, I guess I'm slightly surprised to see Alcaraz just not a little bit higher on, on both, but you know, that's, uh, the big kind of takeaways from this to me are the outliers. The outliers don't lie, don't lie. You know, FAA's backhand, Tommy and, and Hubie's forehand. And look at tour average, by the way, tour average is a seven. Uh, you can see tour average in the middle of the chart. Notice everybody who has any success on clay is far above tour average on the forehand quality. That's no coincidence. I talk about this all the time. I mean, I look at uh, success on slow red clay. There is outsized importance on your ability to hit good forehands. That's why I don't really expect Tommy Paul to have as much success on clay as he does on the quicker, lower bouncing surfaces ever. All right. Tomorrow, I will be back with Tales from the Booth. I'll see you then. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. See you next time.